morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team, and it's great to be with you today. You know, I uh, came across a book this week titled Scorn, The Wittiest and Wickedest Insults in Human History. Now, I'm not endorsing this book. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you read it. I haven't read it myself. But I do just want to share a few famous insults from history with you. Apparently, the famous boxing champion, Willie Pep, he once greeted one of his former boxing opponents by saying to him, lie down so I can recognize you. (laughs) Apparently, Pope John Paul XXIII was asked, how many people work in the Vatican? To which he replied, about half. Then my personal favorite, Lady Astor was a member of the British Parliament, and she once said to Winston Churchill, she said, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. To which Mr. Churchill famously responded, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. Now, we kind of chuckle at these insults, and they are funny, but that's only because they're not directed at us. The truth is, generally speaking, insults are no laughing matter. Harsh words are not innocent fun. I mean, I'm sure that all of us could remember insults or harsh words that have been said to us, perhaps even from many, many years ago. I'm sure that we can all remember insults or harsh words that we've said to others. Words that we wish we could take back. These harsh words, these insults, whether they've been said to us or whether we've said them to others, they've been burned into our brains. That they've seared our hearts and in many ways they've shaped our lives. Because our words have incredible power. Our anger can be incredibly destructive. And this is what Jesus speaks into today in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, the title of today's sermon is, If Lips Could Kill. Because according to Jesus, they can. Now, if you haven't been around for the last couple of weeks, we have been in a sermon series where we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount that the sermon which Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 through to chapter 7, this sermon where he lays out what it means to follow him, where he unpacks what he wants his followers to be and to do. Now, back in week one, we saw that how Jesus wants us to relate to the world. And we saw that Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Last week, we talked about how Jesus wants us to relate to the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible. And we saw that Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And this changes the way that we are to read and interpret the Old Testament. Remember, we saw that in light of Jesus, some things in the Old Testament come to an end. Some things continue to apply. And other things, Jesus will clarify or intensify. He'll kind of bring out for us their true and their deeper meaning. 
And this is really what Jesus is going to do in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. He is going to clarify and intensify some of the moral laws in the Old Testament. In fact, six times in just the next 28 verses, Jesus is going to say, or some kind of variation of it, you have heard that it was said. In other words, you have heard this Old Testament law. You have heard this particular interpretation of it. But then Jesus is going to say, but I tell you. He's going to say, this is what it's truly about. This is what it truly means. Now, it's important to understand when we see Jesus doing this, that he's not correcting the Old Testament law. He's not saying, this is where it was wrong, but this is where I'm going to tell you that it's right. No, he's correcting the religious leader's interpretation of that Old Testament law. He's saying, this is what it truly means. And today, Jesus turns his attention to the Ten Commandments, and specifically, the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. Now, I think it's brilliant that Jesus starts with this commandment, because if there is any of the Ten Commandments, which we're pretty confident we've kept, it's probably going to be this one. You know, remember the Sabbath, honor your parents, do not lie, do not steal. If we're going to be honest, we probably would admit that we've broken some of those. But do not murder? Tick. I've kept that one. I'm not saying for all of us, but for most of us. <laughs> not going to get zero out of ten. Now, this kind of attitude was the same in Jesus' day as well. There was this kind of common understanding that as long as you haven't actually killed anyone, then you're guiltless. You've kept the law. And along comes Jesus and he says, hold on a minute. Think again. He says, murder is much deeper than you think it is. He says, murder is the tip of the iceberg, but there's a whole lot more that goes beneath the surface. And this is what Jesus shows us in this passage. He connects murder to anger. He traces what we do with our hands to what is going on in our hearts, to the anger that lurks beneath the surface. Now, let's be honest. This is not an easy, nice, comfortable topic to talk about. You didn't get in the car this morning going, man, I just hope the sermon is on anger today. I mean, anger is a confronting issue for, it, for us because, let's be honest, we all get angry. Not in the same way and not to the same degree, but we all do things and we all say things that we regret. And not only that, but we've all been harmed by anger. We've had others mistreat us as a result of their anger. And not only that, but we live in a day and in an age and in a culture that seems to be getting angrier. Whether it's on social media or on the roads or in our schools or in our streets or even in our parliament. We see anger all around us and we see anger within us. And this means we need to hear what Jesus has to say to us today. We might not necessarily like what Jesus has to say. We might find it incredibly difficult both to hear and to live. 
but we need to hear it. Because after all, Jesus wants what is good for us. Do you know in these commands that Jesus is going to give us, he's not trying to make life difficult for us. He's not trying to weigh us down. How can I make these Christians' lives miserable? He's actually trying to set us free. I mean, think about the last time that you got angry, excessively, unnecessarily, unrighteously angry. And maybe you don't have to think back very far. Maybe it was getting the kids into the car this morning for church. Now, what did it lead to in your life? More joy, more flourishing, or pain and frustration? See, unrighteous anger is never ultimately good for us, and Jesus wants what is good for us. And so we need to hear what he has to say. Now, maybe you're not a Christian, and if you are, we're we're so glad that you're here. And can I just remind you that in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to his followers, his disciples. These are not instructions for how you get into God's kingdom. If you live this way, then God will accept you. These are actually instructions for those who are already living in God's kingdom. Because God has accepted you in Christ, you can begin to live this way. And so if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear Jesus' words, not as a bar that you kind of need to jump over to prove yourself to God, but an invitation from God into what could be in your life. So, let's dive into these verses together, and we're going to look at them under three headings. Our angry heart, our harsh words, and then finally, our urgent response. Let's begin with our angry hearts. Jesus begins, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, and then he goes on in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, Jesus is saying that whether you stab someone with a knife, whether you lash out at at them in anger, whether you belittle them with your words, it's all part of the same spiritual sickness. It all comes from the same twisted root. Now, Jesus is not saying that whether you stab someone or yell at someone, that they're exactly the same thing. I mean, they're different actions that have different consequences but they come from the same place, that they flow from the same spring. And both of them matter to God, both the external action and the internal attitude, because God looks upon the heart. Now, this elevates the significance of anger, doesn't it? This kind of makes us realize the importance of dealing with our anger. Of course, not all anger is wrong. I mean, after all, Jesus himself got angry. Do you remember the episode at the temple where Jesus walks in and he sees people buying and selling and turning God's place of worship into this place of business? What did Jesus do? Well, he didn't just fly off the handle. We're told he actually went out, found some cords of leather, wove them together, made a whip, went back to the temple turned some tables over, and drove out those who were buying and selling. Jesus got angry. 
Another occasion, Jesus got angry with the Pharisees because of their lack of compassion for the sick and the poor. Mark chapter 3 says he looked around at them, at the Pharisees, in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. In fact, Jesus got so upset with the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, on another occasion, he called them blind fools. Now, you might be wondering, isn't Jesus being a little bit inconsistent? Isn't he being a little bit hypocritical? After all, he's telling us not to get angry. He's telling us not to call other people fools. And yet he kind of seems to be doing the same thing himself. What's going on here? Well, I want you to notice what made Jesus angry. I mean, if you look through his life, and there's only actually a few occasions in the Gospels where we see the anger of Jesus. It's not a common theme or thread in his life. But when we see the anger of Jesus, we see that it's always being driven by two things. It's always being driven because God was being dishonored or people were being mistreated. At the temple, God was being dishonored. God's house was being profaned. And so Jesus took action. With the Pharisees, people were being mistreated, people were being marginalized, and it made Jesus angry. Jesus got angry when God was being dishonored and when people were being mistreated. And this means that there is a place for this kind of anger, this kind of righteous anger, in our lives as well. When we see God being dishonored and people being mistreated, maybe it's it's racism or it's child abuse or it's domestic violence, These things should make us righteously angry. And they should lead us to some sort of appropriate action. But when we talk about our relationships with other people, with with our brothers and sisters, which is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, let's just admit that our anger is not always driven by love for God and love for people. Let's admit that often our anger is driven by more selfish reasons because our nose is put out of joint our toes are trodden on our comfort is spoiled our convenience is disrupted our desires have been frustrated our wills have been crossed our ideas have been challenged our efforts have been overlooked our troubles have been minimized our expectations have been unfulfilled and on and on I could go because I know what it's like In fact, when my kids are are misbehaving at home, let's say they're fighting with one another, if I lose my temper and get angry with them, it's usually not because I'm disappointed in them, you know, they're not showing the character that I'd like, or they're not showing the love that I've asked them to show. It's usually because I've been inconvenienced. It's usually because I've got to stop what I'm doing to go and deal with it. It's not actually anger driven by love for them, it's anger driven by love for self. And if we were to think about all of the different relationships in our lives, I think we would admit that often our anger is driven by selfish reasons. This is what the the Bible says in James chapter 4, for example. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, you want something, but do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. We do not get what we want, so we get 
angry and it leads to quarrels and fights and it leads to harsh words and insults. And this is what Jesus goes on to talk about next. Our harsh words. Look at what he says there in the second half of verse 22. He says again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you've got to say it like that, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is saying, when there is a root of anger in our hearts, the fruit is often angry, harsh words on our lips. And Jesus here gives us a couple of examples. The first is the word raka. Now, this is an Aramaic word, and it literally means empty. It's like saying, you're a nothing. You're a nobody. The, uh, one of the other Bible translates, it translates this word, you good for nothing. It's this kind of dismissive, indifferent attitude towards other people. And Jesus condemns it. You see, it's not just hostility towards others that reveals our anger. It's also indifference towards them. The second phrase Jesus uses there is, you fool. And it's a little bit more obvious, isn't it? This is the Greek word moros. It's the word from which we get our word moron. Jesus, it literally means you moron, you idiot, you fool. Kind of these harsh, belittling insults that are being directed at another person. And Jesus is condemning both of these attitudes. Both indifference towards other people and both hostility towards other people. Because both of these attitudes are connected to murder. I mean, if you say about someone, you're a nobody, you're good for nothing. You're effectively saying to them, I don't care if you're dead. And Jesus condemns that attitude. And if you're using hostile, harsh words to someone, you might not be literally murdering them with your hand, but you're murdering them with your words. You're killing their reputation. You're killing their self-worth. You're killing their security and identity. And this is why the Bible has so much to say about controlling our tongue, about the power of our words. Our careless words can cut very deeply. And the sad truth is that our careless words can cut deepest the ones that we love most deeply. You know, those that are closest to us often bear the brunt of our careless words. We're often able to filter ourselves in public when we're at church, when we're at university or with our friends. But when we're at home, whether it's with our parents or our siblings or our spouse or our kids, we can often let our words run wild and it can do significant damage, even if we don't see the damage that we're doing. Here's the way that Sinclair Ferguson puts it in just such a a vivid way. He says, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly. We just let our words run wild because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. And this is why Jesus kind of wakes us up from our slumber. This is why he shows us how serious this is in the sight of God. 
He says to be indifferent towards other people, to just treat them as nothing. And he says to be hostile towards other people, to, to stab at them with your words. If, if your life is characterized with, by that kind of attitude, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. The way we treat other people, the way we speak about other people, the way we speak to other people, it is serious in the sight of God. And this is why Jesus speaks so forthrightly about it in this passage. Now, of course, Jesus is not just warning us to scare us. He's warning us because he wants what is better for us. You see, God is creating a new world full of new people who are learning to speak in new and life-giving ways. And this is what Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount, to be people characterized by life-giving words. Proverbs 18 says this, it says, The tongue has the power of life and death. Our words can burn down, but our words can also build up. And Jesus is calling us to use words that build up, that bring life. Now, maybe right about now, you're feeling like I was feeling during the week. Pretty convicted about the way that we use our words. Convicted about the way that we've expressed our anger. Convicted about some of the, the damage we've caused and the things that we've said. And the question is, what do we do in response to this conviction from God's Holy Spirit? What should our response be if we're feeling that conviction? Well, this brings us to our third and final point, which is our urgent response. Now, you might think that, that Jesus would kind of say, after talking about the power of our anger and the power of our words, you might think that he would say, so learn to control your anger. Or, or, or learn to control your words. You know, grow in self-control. That's probably the, the application I would have given. But Jesus says that our response is not to do those things, though those things are, are good and we should do them. Jesus says our response is actually to reconcile with those that we've harmed, to reconcile with those who we've wronged, whether, you know, with our angry hearts and with our harsh words, because the biggest earthly consequence of our harsh words, of our anger, it's broken relationships, it's the offense that we cause to other people, it's the damage that we do. And this is why Jesus, in verses 23 to 26, gives us two examples to highlight for us the urgency of reconciling with others. The, the, the second one in verses 25 to 26, you've got two men who are in a dispute and they're on their way to court. They're going to resolve the matter, but Jesus says it'd be far better to resolve it before you even get to court. Sort it out quickly, because if it goes to court, you might end up in prison. And Jesus' point is sort it out urgently, reconcile quickly. The other example Jesus gives in verses 23 to 24 is about a man at church worshipping God. But then he remembers that he has a broken relationship with a brother of his. This other man has a grievance against him. And, and what should he do? Should he give him a phone call later that day? Should he set up a coffee with him later that week? Should he just ignore it and do nothing? Jesus says he should leave the service right away and go and be reconciled to that person. The 
urgency of reconciliation. Now, Jesus is not saying that our relationships with other people, that they're more important than our relationship with God. He's saying that our relationship with God is impacted by our relationships with other people. And if we want to be at peace with God, we must, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with others. I read a story this week from a a bishop in Uganda called Festo Kivengere. He tells the story about when he was going off to preach one day after he'd had a fight with his wife. And he felt convicted by the Holy Spirit, go back and pray with your wife. He argued, he said, well, I'm due to preach in 20 minutes. I'll do it afterwards. And he kind of felt the Holy Spirit prompt him and reply to him and say, okay, you go and preach. I'll stay with your wife. Now, whether, you know, this is true or not, the point is that when our anger and when our harsh words, when they cause a fracture in our relationship, it's on us to do what we can to seek reconciliation. Now, let me be very clear about something. These verses are not talking about the situation when the other person's anger is not our fault. So, for example, the tragic situation of family and domestic violence. The husband, you know, gets angry with his wife because she's burnt the toast. Jesus is not saying that that poor woman needs to go and apologize to her husband. His anger is not her fault. It's his fault. It's his problem to deal with. Nor does this mean that our attempts at reconciliation with others will always be successful. You cannot control what the other person will do and how they will respond. You can only control what you do. And Jesus is saying, where possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. Seek and pursue reconciliation. Because the truth is, when we kind of nurse and harbor anger and offense, it can lead to decades of bitterness and resentment. Friendships can be destroyed. Churches can implode. Marriages can be torn apart. And children can be hurt. I mean, the fallout from our angry hearts and our harsh words, it can be devastating and it can be far-reaching. And this is why Jesus urges us to pursue reconciliation. Now, I know that, that like so many things in the Christian life, this is easy to say in a sermon on a Sunday. And it's a lot harder to live in the trenches of life. I mean, to pursue reconciliation with those who we've wronged, it's about one of the hardest things we could do. But of course, as followers of Jesus, we're able to do this We can pursue reconciliation with others because God has reconciled with us. Do you know, the one who gave us the Sermon on the Mount, the one who is speaking these words to us today, the one who is urging us to pursue reconciliation, he is the most beautiful example of reconciliation. He is the same person that will go to the cross to purchase our reconciliation with God. And so the very best reason for us to pursue reconciliation with those that we've wronged, to set aside our anger towards those who have offended us, 
It's because God's anger towards us and our sin has been set aside through Jesus. And this is why God's word says to us in Colossians 3, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you believe that you're forgiven by God? Do you believe that you are a sinner saved by grace? Do you believe that you're accepted by God in Christ? The more that you believe this, the more that you sense this to be real, the more you'll be able to forgive, the more you'll be able to love, the more you'll be able to show grace and mercy and forgiveness because you've received grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's not easy. But it's the best thing that we could ever do. And it's going to lead to our good and the glory of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that even when it's hard to hear and harder to live, we know that you are like a surgeon cutting us to heal us. Cutting us to make us whole again. And so Lord, where we have felt the conviction of your spirit today help us to just take the next step that you're calling us to take Lord maybe it's to go to someone maybe it's a loved one and to repent of our anger our harsh words to say I'm sorry Lord maybe it's to to reconcile with, with another brother or sister that we know we've wronged to reach out to them as far as it depends on us to live at peace. Lord, so that we might be people clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness. Just like the Lord Jesus. That we might be people willing to forgive because you have forgiven And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.